I've been asking a number of you to pray, saying that I need a lot, I need prayer and appreciate it. And I'm going to pray again because I, I still need more. <laughs> Father, the Apostle John wept because none was found worthy to open the scroll or to look inside of it. And were it not for the Lamb who is worthy, we would not be worthy to open the scroll, the book that we have before us today, that so clearly reveals our sin, your holiness, and the wonderful redemption that is given freely to all who believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I confess, Lord, unworthiness in my flesh to handle your word. But I humbly acknowledge that it is the true word of God. And I pray that as we listen, as we attend to your word, that we would have a true sense that it is your word. Also, Father, would you guide my thoughts, guide my tongue to not go beyond and to not speculate and to not twist the scriptures. Give each of us discernment as we hear. And Lord, we thank you for the righteousness that is supplied for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that we are the bride of Christ who will be clothed in white because it was given to her to be clothed in white, which is the righteous acts of the saints. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage that uh, Kevin St. John just read for us, I wanted that read because it is very much um, kind of a, an eschatological extension of the passage that we're going to read today and that we're going to study. Whenever the Bibles, or I shouldn't say whenever because there are exceptions, but when we are, the Bible talks about white robes in the context of righteousness. These are robes that are imputed to us. They are placed upon us by Christ. They are not something that we initiate ourselves. Chapter 19, these few verses that we read, we see that it is given to the bride, or first of all, that the bride has made herself holy or made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine light linen, bright and pure. So we have this image. And we've, some of us have cried when they've seen a bride walking down the aisle to meet her husband. I cried when I saw my bride. <laughs> cried through the whole wedding. <laughs> but this image of the bride, who is the bride? Well, the bride is the church. The bride was defined in the passage that 
Pastor Kevin Lackey read, as those who have been ransomed by Jesus, by the blood of Jesus from every tribe, nation, and tongue. That's the bride. The bride is the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven with foundations, 12 foundations, the apostles of the Lamb, 12 gates, which are the 12 tribes of Israel, coming down resplendent, representing the saints of all time. And these saints are collectively gathered and represented in the image of a bride having made herself ready for her husband. She clothes herself in robes and it is given to her to clothe herself in these robes. It is something that is outside of her that is imputed. Even the right, even the privilege of having these clothes. And these clothes... This garment, this wedding garment, the, white, the fine linen, bright and pure, is defined for us as the righteous deeds of the saints. Do our deeds make us worthy for heaven? No. Are our deeds the basis of our salvation? No. Do our deeds our righteous deeds that we do in Christ, do they contribute to the glory of Christ's bride? Yes. The very clothing of the bride of Christ is our righteous deeds which it is given to which are given to us in Christ. So with that, I'd like us to read our passage for today in um, Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to just backtrack a bit for context and we'll read verses 3 up 3 till 3 and up to uh, to 17. So please follow along with me in your Bibles. If then you have been raised with Christ Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you, were, when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeking, seeing that you have put off the old self and its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator." Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And now to today's selection. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, 
kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. That's the end of our text for this, uh, this week, but I want to read uh, until, the end of, uh, until the end of 17. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we're going to zone in on verses 12 and 13 today. This matter of putting on, of the, we are told in already in verses 9 and 10, we're given the general concept of putting, putting on Christ, putting on a new nature, putting on a new man. And then in verses 12 and 13, and actually continuing on through this uh, section, we have um, specific uh, it, itemization of what it means to put on this new man, put on this new nature. And I will say that this section here, especially verses 12 and 13, you could put an umbrella over it and I think the general theological concept that it is talking about is sanctification. The idea of how we are set apart unto God. This is a God thing, that God does this. And yet we are being made into the image of Christ. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. That is God's end game, end goal, if you like that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, that we would indeed be clothed in righteousness as the bride of Christ. So theological um, context is that of sanctification, and that sanctification is made very clear that it, it, we are dealing now with progressive sanctification um, in the term put on, get dressed. It literally means get dressed, put on, we're told in verse 9, put on the new man. And in verse 12 here, it tells us the garments that define that new man. If you want a little outline to track with where we're going, we're going to, first of all, look at the God of sanctification. We realize that none of these commands, this command, none of these commands will do one whit of good to a person who is not already in Christ. Righteousness, uh, striving for things such as um, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Most people in the world desire these things, and most people in the world strive in some way for these things, but they are as filthy rags to a person who has the old nature that they were born with and has no new nature. So we're going to look, first of all, that it, we're at the God of sanctification. Then we're going to look at the garments of sanctification. What does sanctification look like? What does a saint look like? We dress to express who we are. Um, if you're part of a team, you put on a uniform 
You identify with your team. If you're a, a Trump supporter, you wear a mega hat. You identify with the person who called you. Um, and so we're going to look at what those garments look like. Then in verse 13, the first part, we're going to look at the graciousness of sanctification, which is what we, ha- we are wearing these garments, these attributes, they're part of us. But what do they look like when they're actually lived out? Well, it looks like this, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. I'm calling that the graciousness of sanctification. And you'll see that, uh, why I've chosen that term in a bit. And then the last part here, in the last part of verse 13, is the goal of sanctification. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. Remember, Christ's goal in us is that his image would be formed in us. And our goal in our living out, in our working out of our salvation, is to be conformed to the image of Christ. No other concept will be a test for us being conformed to the image of Christ more so than our forgiveness of one another. Nothing nothing says Christ so clearly as forgiveness, forgiveness of sins um, based on his work, based on his merit, based on his advocacy. So that's a sketch of where we will be going. So let's uh, just quickly now read those two verses again. Put on then, verse 12 and 13, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So, that you, so you also must forgive. As I said, the big umbrella term here is sanctification. God doing his work in us and us responding to the work of grace in us. Philippians talks about working out your salvation. This is what it looks like. Um, and it, with regard to sanctification, there's kind of two aspects of it. One of them is putting off putting off, separating ourselves from the things that go with the old nature, who we were in our old nature, putting off those things, you know, envy, anger, all of the things, uh, covetousness, which is idolatry. That's part of it. That's the negative side of sanctification. Uh, The positive side is putting on the new nature, putting on the righteous garment, which is provided for us by Christ. So let's look first at the God of sanctification. For now, even though put on is sort of the command that rings through this whole text, we're going to lay that aside and look at to whom this command applies. Put on then, therefore, in light of everything that we've learned about our nature in Christ, everything we've learned about us being regenerated and how that is expressed in the symbols of circumcision and then baptism, everything we've learned about um, having nothing to do with false, plausible-sounding arguments that exalt themselves against God, um, 
being those who have been raised again to life with Christ, being those who have come to the deep realization that Christ is all and in all, where Christ is who matters and what matters beyond anything in this world. So, therefore, in the light of these things, put on, and here we find out who we really are in Christ, if indeed we are in Christ. Uses three words, or three concepts here. Well, the first one is, of course, that put on as God's possessive. God's, God apostrophe S. God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. I want you to notice something about all three of these things. All three of these terms, all three of these concepts emanate and find their center in God, not us. Just look at the first word as God's chosen ones. Literally, electoi, eklektoi, sorry, in Greek. God's elect. The Jewish people, they had an understanding that they were God's chosen people. Here is Paul talking to the Gentiles, saying, you're part of this too. You are now elect of God. You share in the blessings of true Israel. You're chosen by God. You're called out by God. Uh, you are specifically Chosen not on the basis of anything that you've done. Not on the basis of your goodness or badness. But on the basis of his sovereign choice. And on the basis that he has provided mercy for you and grace through his son Jesus. So, first of all I want us to notice that election, the choice, is God's, not ours. When God chooses us, when God calls us, we freely choose him. But not because we find anything in ourselves that seeks God. God seeks us. God regenerates us. God gives us hearts that first of all fear him and then repent and then love him and worship him. This, isn't, this is God's doing. So, chosen, God's chosen ones, think about that for a minute. If you know that, know that you belong to Christ, God chose you. God chose you. That should not make your heart swell with pride. That should make you... It shouldn't even make you ask why, because you know there is no why. It's got to be an act of grace. Look at the second word there, holy. The word is based on the, the Greek, the same as we have for saint, hagios. Um, sanctified by God set apart unto God. Something that is sanctified, if it were in the temple, it's sanctified, it's set apart for a special purpose, for a God-ordained purpose. And 
in this aspect, sanctification is all of God. God sets us apart. He calls us as his saints. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, called, and really we have additional words in there, called, uh, sorry, it's not chapter, I forget where it is exactly, but it's not, it is, Romans chapter 1, verse 1, called to be saints, the to be it's inserted there. It's, it, we, that isn't necessary. Called saints. This is who we are. We are called saints. God has called us saints. He has called us sanctified ones, those chosen out especially for him. Paul addresses the Corinthians in a similar way. It says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified in Christ Jesus. Chosen and set apart in Christ Jesus. Called to be his saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I address you hopefully here. I address you hopefully as saints. Knowing that election and calling is something that God knows. And I can't know perfectly as God knows. If you have assurance of salvation, then you know. You know your calling. You may not have that assurance. At bare minimum, have you called on the name of the Lord? Have you seen your sin and the holiness of Christ? And have you called on him as a desperate sinner and cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. Rescue me. Sanctify me. Make me fit by the work of Jesus Christ dying for my sin and rising from the dead to be in your presence, not only now, but for all eternity. So, to review here, the election is God's, not ours. So, the election, we can call that, well, we'll call it what it is, God's election when we look at sanctification, we're looking at God's perfection. God sees us as saints, not on the virtue of who we are or what we've done, but on the basis of what Christ has done. We are called to be saints. And we are literally called saints. Then we look at the... Uh, the third part here, which is uh, sorry, beloved, holy and beloved. That word beloved is the, the Greek word is agape, spiritual love, divine love. And again, this is not us. Um, learning about God, discovering how wonderful he is, how holy, how just, how merciful, how loving he is. And then out of the uh, deep, deep well of our, our own hearts, saying, I, I love God. This doesn't happen. In the depths of our own hearts, until God changes them, there is hatred for God. So just like the election is God, God's, not ours, 
The perfection is God's, not ours. The affection is God's, not ours. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the sacrifice that turns away wrath for our sins. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because he first loved us. So the point is, we take credit for none of this. We do not look to ourselves as uh, in any way responsible for our sainthood, for our setting apart, for our calling. We look to God. He is the one who has done this. Ephesians 1, uh, I have verse 45, but I don't know if it has 45 verses here, but it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, if being chosen isn't a wonder in itself, Consider this, that if you are in Christ and you know this, that you were chosen in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ according to the purpose of his will. So when we look at these things, we do not look to ourselves. We look to God. What kind of a God chooses people, makes them holy, justifies the ungodly, loves them unconditionally with agape, unconditional spiritual love. Well, that's our God. Now, I've ignored up until this point the command to put on now we get to the putting on. Put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's a little interlude in the sentence, so we, he knows, we know that who he's talking to. Now he says, put on, therefore, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. These are garments of sanctification. To put on literally means to put on. I decided that since I'm preaching today, I would not wear blue jeans and a t-shirt. And with the, the theme I'm speaking on, especially about putting on, you know, putting on these things. Well, what does a, what does a preacher wear? Well, he might wear a jacket, a tie, a shirt. But this idea of getting dressed in the morning, it's something we all understand. And I think all of us, or most of us, make some effort to put on clothes that when we go out into the world, um, people aren't looking at us and saying, man, that person doesn't care what they look like. We want to put our best um, foot forward, our best look forward, I guess you could say. Um, and when we represent Christ, and when Christ is in us, what do we want people to see? Do we want people to see the old nature that lingers and we continue to wrestle with? Or do we want people to see the new nature? We want people to see Christ. Romans chapter 13 says it 
very simply, put on Christ. Christ should be radiating from us as we walk through this life. So the idea is that of putting on clothing. Just remember that picture of the bride and she is given, it's given to her to put on white, white linen, which is the righteous acts of the saints. Well, here is some of that righteousness. Oh, I should say, first of all, about the, uh, the verb put on. Back in verse 9, it's what's called the aorist nominative, which means it is something that is to be done, that it's done at immediately at present, in the present time. But when we, it's the same verb here used in verse 10, but the verb tense changes and it becomes imperative. All right, so the first, in verses 9 and 10, we're saying this is the general principle. Put on, put off, put off the old nature, put on the new nature, put on the new man. But here are some things in which we must engage and they are given as a command. So this put on, it's not just a description, it's a command. Here are the things we are to put on. We are to put on compassionate hearts. The word for heart literally means inward parts. Um, When people in ancient cultures would make a sacrifice, including when the, when the Jews would make a sacrifice according to uh, God's um, parameters and laws he gave them, there was a special thing that they did with the inward parts, the kidneys and all of this. But in a broader sense, your inward parts in a human being are considered the, sense, the, the seat of intense emotion, of deep feeling, um, intense feeling. And that is used again with another noun. I, I won't attempt to pronounce it, but another Greek noun which is uh, translated as compassion or sympathy. And that can denote grief or sorrow, but also a readiness to help. If you think of someone who has a gift of mercy, it's a different word in the Greek, but when Jesus... Um, when Jesus looks on the 5,000 people, he, is, he looks at them and he is moved with compassion because they are like sheep without a shepherd. What, that, that word, he's moved with compassion, it, it's, it, he's saying his heart, his inward being was stirred with compassion. It says here, this is something we are to put on. What we experience in the body of Christ, it is beyond what is already there in the fallen human nature. It's something beyond all that. It's something that does not exist apart from Christ. Now, Christ gives us a new nature, but we know from all of Paul's writings and all of life that we wrestle with the old nature until we are made new, until the consummation, until we, we are like Jesus when we see him as he is and we are transformed in a moment in a twinkling of an eye. And when we are then raised again, incorruptible. So we, we know that 
our hearts without Christ are hearts of stone. That's why Ezekiel talks about God taking out our hearts of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. This is regeneration. So when we, when we are new in Christ, the compassionate heart is there. I believe it's Spurgeon, or it might be D.L. Moody, and there's a big difference between the two. But uh, Spurgeon or Moody, they talked about the love of God being poured out in their hearts, where everything, the birds sang more sweetly. There, there was just this overwhelming love. And maybe you can think back to when you were first saved. Think back to what John calls in Revelation your first love, the Ephesian church. You've lost your first love. Think about your first love for your spouse and how that love permeated your every thought, your every word, uh, your every action. This is something that just like we get dressed in the morning, we need to look to Jesus We need to look in our closet what Jesus has provided and he has provided for us compassionate hearts. He has provided for us the ability to see our brother and sister in in the way that Christ sees them. We are to put on kindness. Kindness is a gentle, gracious disposition. In the church, we we see this all the time. We see little glimpses of it in the world. But again, the kindness that is available in Christ exceeds what is available and what is normal in the human nature. It is something that flows out of a heart that is looking to Christ as their source of life to one whom Christ is all and in all. We're to put on humility or humbleness of mind. And this is what humility means, having a humble opinion of oneself, a deep sense of one's moral littleness, modesty, lowliness of mind. Philippians chapter 2 says, let, uh, exhorts us not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. We need to think realistically about who we are. And when we have a right view of God, we will have a right view of ourselves. We're to put on meekness. Moses is described as meek. There was never a man so meek as Moses. What is meekness? Meekness is an inwrought grace of the soul, that temper of spirit in which we accept God's dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. Whatever my God ordains is right. That is a meek attitude. Not wrestling with God over the hardships and saying, why are you treating me this way? 
but knowing that the God, of the judge of all the earth, will do right. Resting in the sovereignty of God. Understanding that all things do work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, even if those things that work together for good involve a famine, peril, and sword. The persecuted church understands those things. And many martyrs throughout the millennia, two millennia of the church, and before that, those Old Testament saints, some of them were sawn in two. Some of them were fed to lions. Some of them had hot oil dumped down their throats. Some of them recanted their faith. But many didn't. Because they knew they were meek before the Lord. They could go into the flames rejoicing. Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego went into the flames knowing that their God was able to deliver them. So we've looked now at the, the God of sanctification. But we're still, there's one more thing in the garments. Patience. <clears throat> Long-suffering. Makrothumian in Greek. Choosing to exercise and this is my definition, choosing to exercise mercy over wrath. An example of long-suffering um, can be seen in the parable of that unjust servant who is forgiven 10,000 talents. And the, uh, the, the, the king in the, in the story, he, he says, or the man pleads, says, be patient with me, have long-suffering with me. 10,000 talents is like $10 billion. This is an insurmountable amount. Long-suffering, choosing to exercise mercy over wrath. God's long-suffering is placed in juxtaposition. It's placed beside his wrath. Um, we're told that the day, uh, I just lost that reference, so I won't say it. But we know that Romans chapter 2, or 1, 2 it is, I think, we are storing up wrath until the day of judgment. Why isn't God pulling the plug right now? Why is he not destroying this world? Why did God not destroy the children of Israel and make a nation out of Moses alone. This has to do with long-suffering. Putting up with unthinkable things in each other. This is not a common human virtue. Um, try teaching kindergarten, grade one, grade two, grade three for a week. Um, long-suffering, you might... You might even think of, or patience, you might think of a mother cat or a mother dog feeding all those little 
yappy or mewy things that are crawling all over and jostling and the mom just lies there patiently and, and licks them and um, you're thinking why isn't, why isn't she having a nervous breakdown that, that just looks like way too much and I just saw Joe smiling <laughs> she understands this yeah <laughs> long suffering right there <laughs> yeah all right Okay, so those are, that's not an exhaustive list. It reminds me a lot of the fruit of the Spirit. It also has something in common with put on the whole armor of God. It's a different context. When we put on Christ in the, in the sense of battle, we put on the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shoes of the gospel of peace. All, are the, all of those are attributes of Christ. They are things that are found in Christ. And that's in the context of battle. In the context of day-to-day life, day-to-day life, these are things we must put on. We have to pay attention to doing this. And I think even though the verb is eris, which is the sense of completed act, the, pairing it with the idea of putting on clothes, I think the Holy Spirit would want us to think about these are things, putting on is something you do every day. How do you put on these things? I think we get a clue if we look, kind of cheat and go ahead a little bit. Verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This talks about the church, singing to one another, admonishing one another, and letting the word of Christ dwell richly in us. This is how we cultivate these things. All right, let's look at the graciousness of sanctification. In verse 13, the first part, it says, Bearing one another, in bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. This, if you have compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, this will result in an attitude, in a behavior, in a way of dealing with other people that is going to define you as, as Christ, as his saints. And interesting, he puts the first thing, the first characteristic here is bearing with one another. Do you think it's important in the church that we, that we put up with one another? Despite the fact that we're very, very different, we have introverts, we have extroverts, um, we have people who are um, <clears throat> gifted in speech, we have people who hardly speak at all, we have children, we have adults, we have men. I don't know if men are from Mars and women are from Venus, but we're very different. Do we not need to put up with one another? Is this not a a very practical thing? When we put on Christ, when we put on this new nature, bearing with one another is something that we are happy to do. To a type A personality and another type of personality, or two type A's, they they have to put up with one another. Maybe that happens a little bit sometimes at our elders' table. 
whoops, we, we put, in some ways, we bear with one another. And it's important. So, and it's interesting that bearing with one another is paired here with forgiving one another. Um, they're related to, to each other. And it says here, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Well, you mean complaining happens in church? Do you mean that people actually um, approach a brother or sister and say, what are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Or how come you're doing this? Or you're sinning? If this doesn't happen in the church, we are really not functioning well. We are assuming that uh, other people know our thoughts and know our concerns without us even voicing them. So if one has a complaint against another, it says forgiving each other. Now notice, usually if I come with a complaint, I'm expecting the person that I'm complaining about to forgive me. What does it say here? Forgiving each other. Isn't it normal when someone brings a complaint against you that you feel wronged by the complaint? Right? There's, there can be tension both ways in that situation. But I've called this section here the graciousness of sanctification because it is filled with grace. Bearing with one another, that's kind of, that's kind of the mercy side. You don't give them what you think they deserve, right? You're, you're putting up with people. You're, you're, you're saying, all right, that bothers me, but I'm fine. We can deal with this. But then forgiving one another. The word forgiving here is uh, charizomai, which is the same word as, uh, as grace or as gift. Grace. We could say gracing each other to show one's self to show oneself gracious kind benevolent to grant to give forgiveness so as i said the greek word grace is charis and has the same form as this word so in giving that's why giving is in the word forgiving right it's it's a gift that is given it is something that is not not deserved it is something that is not earned we don't have each other brothers and sisters we don't have each other do penance in order that we might forgive we're commanded here to forgive one another just as christ has forgiven us as the lord has forgiven you so you must forgive about forgiveness Matthew chapter 18. In fact, I think let's just move on to the goal of sanctification. The goal of sanctification is as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. So I ask, how does the Lord forgive? On what basis does the Lord forgive? What does it look like when the Lord forgives? To what extent does the Lord forgive? Well, we know that the Lord forgives in response to confession. 
if we confess, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So that is, a, he, he, he forgives when the sin is acknowledged. It, just a little bit after that in 1 John, it says, if we say that we have no sin, we make God a liar and the truth is not in us. This confession is really, really important. It's the difference between walking in the light and walking in darkness. So as we forgive one another, one of the things, one of the things we should look for is an acknowledgement, is a confession of the sin. We can't forgive a person effectively if a person has not acknowledged this sin. We can put up with them, we can endure, but we can't biblically forgive. Another aspect of forgiveness, if we are to forgive as Christ forgave us, is that, or that God forgives us, he forgives us not on our merits, but on the basis of the sacrifice and advocacy of Christ. If we do sin, um, John, 1 John 2, verse 1 says, I think, if we do sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. I'll just read it here when I get to it. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. If we look at ourselves as being forgiven on the basis of Christ's sacrifice as a propitiation for our sins and every one that he is to call out of the world, if we look at him, our forgiveness that way, if we look at him as forgiving when we confess our sins, and if we are to forgive as Christ, as God forgives us, should we be looking at the person who has sinned against us through our own justice or should we be looking at them through Christ's sacrifice and advocacy and the, come, them coming into the light and saying, I've sinned? The whole point of Matthew 18, um, and I'll, I'll just read this section in a second, but the whole point of Matthew 18 verses 15 and on is to bring a person to a place where they acknowledge, confess their sin, repent, and they're restored. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two brothers along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Um, so there are there are qualifications on our forgiveness even as Christians. We can't forgive a sin that is um, not even repented of. We can forgive again and again and again for the same sin. But ultimately, we are not to be the judge of this. 
if we know that person is in Christ, we are to put up with one another and forgive. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also, so you also must forgive. It's interesting that some of the scariest verses about, uh, uh, I don't know whether to call it a falling away or, a, or a apostatizing from the faith. Some of them are in the context of uh, bitterness against brothers and sisters. In Ephesians where we're told, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. I believe the context there is, um, in fact, I'll have to look it up. Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 32, I think. Yeah. Look at verse 29 in Ephesians chapter 4. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for the building up as fits the occasion that that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Spirit of God by who you are sealed until the day of redemption, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. I would say bitterness, clamor, slander, malice, that's sort of the opposite of forgiveness, right? This grieves the Holy Spirit. It grieves the Holy Spirit when we do not forgive each other. And we should all be very concerned if we are grieving the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 12, uh, verse 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without no, which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So I know you've got to take Hebrews' warnings. There's a, you, you cannot assume that this is a warning that people will lose their salvation, but there is evidence of salvation and perpetual bitterness, unforgiveness in our hearts, at the very least is going to do great damage to our testimony, is going to do great damage to the church, it will be a bitter root in the church that will cause many to become defiled. I've got to watch bitterness in my heart over past wrongs. This is a, a continual battle for me, and you may have this battle as well. So this is, this is not a law-heavy message. It is a realistic message of what a Christian looks like. What a saint looks like. A saint is defined by a compassionate heart, by kindness, by humility, by meekness. How does a saint act? They put up with, saints put up with each other. We forgive one another. Just as God in Christ has forgiven us. If we can consciously 
as a church, as individuals that make up the church, which is the bride of Christ, which is the new Jerusalem, which is the sum total of all who have been ransomed by the blood of Christ from every tribe, nation, and tongue. We get up every morning, we put on Christ. First of all, everything the world says about us will be a lie when they try to malign us. Even the, the Romans, the early Roman historians who tried to fault the church morally, found very, very slim ground on which to do so. We have an opportunity right now, even before the marriage supper of the Lamb, to shine, to take upon ourselves the white linen which is the righteous acts of the saints. Let's adorn the gospel with the character of Jesus. This is freely available to all. It is given to her to put on white linen. It is given to us. These are not things we manufacture. We can ask God for these things. If, he give, if we ask him, if we ask him, for, ask him for a bread, will he give us a stone? If we ask him for a fish, will he give us a scorpion? Is your heart sad and crusty and stony? Ask God for a compassionate heart. All of this is provided for us in Christ. God is the God of our sanctification. In him we are called, we are beloved, and we are holy. If we are indeed called, beloved, holy, then this will express itself in our lives, in our spiritual wardrobe. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this passage which makes so simple for us what it means to live as a Christian, to live as one, as those who are called and holy and beloved through your action. We understand, Lord, that this changes us. We understand, Lord, that we need to daily come to you for grace. We need to daily pick up our cross and follow you. We need to daily put on and put off, put off and put on. We thank you, Lord, that because of Christ, we can do this. People in the world cannot put off and put on. They're stuck with the same hell-bound sinful nature. But you have made us new in Christ. You've raised us together with him. And I pray that in him we might walk in newness of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And Floyd is going to come lead us in.